Well, good evening, uh, everyone. It's uh, good to be here once again uh, to bring God's Word here at uh, St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. Um, last time I shared from uh, this pulpit, uh, there was a congregation, uh, but we shared from the first book, uh, the first chapter of the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1, and uh, now we're going to go on and begin uh, in chapter 2. Now, let me just uh, retrace my steps just a little bit, um, the, a little bit of a summary of this whole book. Uh, it's a very complicated book when you read it, and complex issues appear, uh, and yet there is a simple theme that goes through it, and that theme is that God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. And as we read the book, we can see that uh, unfold uh, in a way. Uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is, is more of a picture book than a puzzle book. Uh, when, we, when we look at it, there are very complex characters that appear, um, and if we try to look into every detail of these, then it becomes quite difficult to understand. Uh, but if we see it as pictures, um, and uh, pictures that will help us to understand God's way uh, and how He is going to show His servants that way, um, God is not here uh, bringing us this message, bringing us this book uh, to somehow hide himself away, but to bring revelation, as the name suggests, uh, and not keep us in the dark. And so, in reading and studying the book of Revelation, we can see God's greatness, um, and we can look forward to his coming. The, the, the letter, as it is, is written uh, to the churches um, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And there are uh, churches, churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches that are there. And we're only going to take time to look at one of these uh, churches this evening. But uh, some of the background uh, that we saw last time is that the Apostle John is a prisoner on the island of Patmos, which is pretty much a Roman quarry. He's an old man. He's probably in his 80s or even his 90s at this stage in his life, and he's being used as a slave. Uh, and uh, he sees himself more as a prisoner for the gospel because the reason he has been taken there is because of his uh, ability to preach the gospel, and that, of course, was an offense uh, to the Roman authorities at the time. Um, the first church we read about of the seven churches is the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was, at that time, probably the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, so it was a very large city. And at the time of writing, um, it was a major center for commerce, and it was the home of the Greek uh, temple to Artemis. And uh, for those of you who are, are interested, that is also uh, the Roman goddess Diana. So um, there was a lot of, of uh, worship uh, going on in the city of Ephesus. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
And so you can imagine the, uh, the number of people that were drawn there for, from all over the area uh, and sometimes all over the world to see uh, this remarkable temple. A little bit more information is given to us on Artemis. If you read the, the book of Acts chapter 19, you'll find there that the apostle Paul engages with a man called uh, Demetrius the silversmith who was making artifacts uh, for temple worship. And uh, he was very concerned that people were turning away from Artemis uh, worship to worship Christ uh, because the gospel was affecting his income and he didn't like that too much at all. And so um, just a little bit of that background helps us to understand the position that the church was in. Um, the, the church was in a, a challenging and very difficult place uh, in that city. This particular book is what's called an apocalyptic book. It's apocalyptic writing. And uh, as the Apostle Paul languishes in the island of Patmos, he's given this message by Jesus to send to his church. And as we looked at chapter 1 last time, we met uh, one who was described in numerous ways. Someone who was described as the one who is, who was, and who is to come in chapter 1 verse 4. Secondly, he was described as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, as described in chapter 1 verse 5. In verse 8, he's described as the Alpha and the Omega. And in verse 17, described as the first and last, the living one. And uh, we may all wonder, well, what is all that about? These are names that are given to Christ, names that are given to God. Um, and so we can identify the one who is present uh, leading us through this letter that uh, the Apostle John has been asked to write down. But something very significant about him, we're told uh, in the first chapter that one glimpse of this person that is being described makes John fall down as though he were dead. And uh, so it's quite a, quite a challenge when we, when we see that and when we read that, that this is the one, this is the Christ we've come to worship. There are many who would like to um, face up to God, would like to face Him and tell Him that He's done something wrong or the way that the world has been created or that we have been created is wrong. But uh, those people don't understand who God is and that one glimpse of Him makes even a man of God, a holy man of God, drop down as though he were dead. And it's very similar to the story that we read in the book of Isaiah chapter 6, where uh, Isaiah says that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord and he describes something of his temple. And he describes himself to those around him. He says, it's like I've been undone. It's like I've been dismantled um, by just glancing and looking upon the living God. And so when we come to read this particular chapter and through this particular book, we can understand that the one who is with us uh, through this 
as we read it, is the one who is the living God and one that uh, brings uh, a wonder even to our, to our thoughts and to our minds as we read through. We discovered last time that this Jesus that we're talking about, this God is the one who loves us, who frees us, and who has made us into a kingdom of priests. And so we've been called to serve him in chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. We discovered also that he has a, a double-edged sword in his mouth, chapter 1, verse 16, and that he holds the keys of death and Hades in verse 18. So let's pick up something of the first uh, few verses of this amazing book and this amazing chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now the word angel there can be, can be translated messenger, or some uh, theologians have um, translated it pastor. So it may well be speaking directly to the pastors of the churches. And you know that God very clearly uses pastors nowadays to preach his word. And so he speaks very carefully to them. They, they go and they study and they spend time in the presence of God. And they are called to preach the word of God. And so we would do well to listen when our pastors speak. At the very end of this chapter, it talks about those who have ears to hear. And God would like us, would want us, would command us to have ears that hear, not just physically hear, but allow the hearing to take place in our soul and to heed the word that is spoken to us. Jesus says, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so he's speaking through his pastors to his people. And so in verse 1, the angel of the church or the pastor of the church in Ephesus write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we're told uh, previously in chapter 1 that the seven golden lampstands and the stars are identifiable. The seven stars are the angels or the ministers or the pastors of the churches. And so Jesus is saying that he holds these people in his hand. But chapter 1 verse 20 describes that. The seven golden lampstands in, in verse 20 also are described as the churches. And so when we read this in chapter 2, we discover that in fact this word is coming to uh, the church and that the church and the pastors of the churches are held by Jesus. And it tells us there also that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And that made my mind go back to the book of Genesis, right at the other end of the Bible as we have it, where Jesus, the, the, the living Christ, the God of heaven, is walking in the garden. And in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, it says there, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God 
as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so we can know as we read these words that Jesus walks amongst his churches, the seven golden lampstands, just in the same way that he walked uh, amongst the, 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 the garden uh, of Eden and amongst Adam and Eve as they were there. So he is with his people. The Lord God is one who wants to bring um, relationship. He wants to communicate. He wants to be close with his people. And here he is amongst the churches. They're going through, and if, if you read through this uh, part of the, the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, you'll find that, that the church is going through an incredibly difficult time. And here we find that Jesus is walking amongst them. Now, sometimes as, as believers even now, or those perhaps who are not believers, they wonder what that's all about. How can a God who is so holy be amongst those who are so unholy at times, those who sin? So we, want, we think the Lord somehow is going to burn us up if uh, he comes anywhere near us. But Micah chapter 7 verse 8 tells us this. It says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance, who does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in loving devotion? You know, our world sometimes points the finger at God and says he's a hateful, brutal God. And yet the Scripture very clearly describes him in another way, describes him as, as one who delights in loving devotion. And here is the Lord God walking amongst his people in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thought to know that Jesus walks amongst his churches and even though we are separated at this moment in time, even though that we cannot gather in the same way that we would normally do, we can be assured that the living God is walking amongst us, that he is with us in his church uh, amongst the seven golden lampstands. And in verse 2, he goes on to say, I know your deeds. And so it's wonderful that God knows what we are doing and what we are up to on any given occasion. He's with us. He knows our deeds. How does he know our deeds? Because he's walking amongst us. He's walking amongst his people. And he begins to list here, the Apostle John, as he writes this, he begins to list what these deeds are. He says that there, there's hard work going on. There's perseverance happening. He also goes on to say that this is a people who cannot tolerate wicked people. And it tells us that they have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. Verse 3, it says, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. 
It's wonderful that God knows our deeds. Sometimes that may be a challenge if our deeds are not righteous, but certainly he is there and he knows uh, what we're doing. He, in this particular part of that, these few verses, there is, there is a list of all that is good about this church. It's hardworking. It's a hardworking people. They put on a lot of effort, which is great. They don't tolerate wicked people. You know, tolerance is one of these words which is bandied about in our generation a lot at this moment in time. We are required to have tolerance towards just about everything. And yet, here, God is saying, do not tolerate wicked people. And uh, so, He requires that of us. Thirdly, we are to test those who make false claims about themselves, the false prophets uh, of uh, our generation. Here in, in the book of Revelation, it's talked, it talks about false apostles, those who want to uh, engineer things within the church which are unhelpful. But in our generation, we have many false religions, we have many false prophets, and we are being asked to test these things. It may be the prosperity gospel or something like that. It may well be something that has more recently come into the generation in which we live or will come in days to come. But we are being asked to make sure that we test what is right and identify that which is false. We're also called upon to be those who persevere. A per person who perseveres is one who presses on regardless of the delaying tactics of the enemy. And uh, when uh, World War I was celebrated, the hundred years and so on of World War I, we had lots of stories of people who under duress and in difficulty persevered and were in the end given a medal because they persevered and the enemy fire was upon them all the time. But our perseverance is not against physical human uh, enemies, but against spiritual powers in high places, the Bible tells us. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 4, it tells us there that that suffering that comes sometimes uh, into our life brings perseverance. Out of suffering comes perseverance. And from perseverance comes character. And from character comes hope. And the Bible tells us there that uh, hope does not disappoint. And we are called to be people who hope in the Lord. Then it talks about endurance of hardships. Not for any reason, but for the name of Jesus. And those who have endured hardship for my name, he says. And there are many stories in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where people have endured uh, suffering because of the name of the Lord. And one obvious one in the Old Testament is where uh, Elijah, um, in the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, was the only prophet who was left um, 
And in 1 Kings, I think it is chapter 18, um, he um, complains that he is the only one left and says, Lord, you need to help me in this situation. And he was suffering hardship, enduring hardship, uh, and uh, it was a real problem, and God came in to his situation. And then later it talks about not growing weary, not growing weary. And during this particular time of lockdown, weariness is one of the things that people describe as a, a problem that they have, that they're just getting weary of the whole thing and very tired. And God is saying to us here uh, that one of the, the attributes of a good church is that it doesn't grow weary. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9 says this, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And so, on one side here, we have a list of, of attributes of everything that is good about this church. But then along comes verse 4 of chapter 2, and that brings a challenge uh, to the church. Here is Jesus speaking, the one in front of whom the prophet of God or the, the apostle of God, the apostle John, collapsed and fell down as though he was dead. He has pointed out with his finger something that he has identified he says, yet I hold this against you in verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And Jesus says, I'm holding this against you. I'm not going to turn a blind eye, even though all these good attributes were there. Here is this one thing. It's not a list as on the other side. It is one specific thing that Jesus has identified. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Jesus wants us to love him. He wants our obedient service out of love, not because we are scared of any other option, but because we love him. Jesus, in John chapter 14, verse 15, in the ESV, it says this, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so, a way that we identify the church when it's going away from Jesus and, and forsaking the first love that we had is that we forget the commandments that Jesus has given to us, His Word, His Scripture. Very clearly, from that we can identify His commandments. The unmistakable meaning of the passage is that obedience to Christ's commandments is both a sign and a test of our love for Him. And so, we need to identify the situation if we have left 
our first love behind, if we began to go in a different direction, if we began to forget the commandments that Jesus has given us. And then it says in verse 5 what we should do about it. Now, the problem with the church in Ephesus was, as one commentator has put it, they had a dutiful doctrinal coldness. They had all these good things going for them, but in the end, it was kind of a duty. It was kind of cold. There is nothing worse than when a church turns cold because of a dutiful response to Jesus. He is seeking a loving response, one with hearts full uh, to serve Him. And so, this church had lost its first love. And someone put it like this, that there is a process that can be identified. The first part of the process is that our love for Christ is cooled. Secondly, followed, following that is spiritual apathy is seen. Then a love for something else becomes evident. Then compromising with evil follows swiftly on. And from there corruption comes, then death, then judgment. And if you look back uh, to last week, uh, when we heard from uh, Psalm 1, you'll find there that it's a very simple process that was taking place in that person's life the man who is, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And so when that dutiful doctrinal coldness begins to take over in the church, then we can find there are difficulties that come with that. And so what should our response be? Verse 5 tells us what our response should be. First of all, we are called to consider how far we have fallen. In other words, we need to take stock of the situation. We need to take stock of our lives and find out how far have you fallen? And that's sometimes difficult for us as individuals to know. But in terms of the church, we also need to take stock and say, how far have we fallen? Secondly, it calls us to repent. Now, repentance means turning around. Um, we, we are at one day doing things our way. We're going in our direction. But repentance means that we turn around and we begin to go God's way and we do things in His way. And so we reject our standards and we grasp hold of God's standards. So consider how far you have fallen and then repent or turn around. And then thirdly, it says, and do the things you did at first. In our touchy-feely world in which we live, 
we might think that somehow or another we've got to feel good about ourselves or we've got to begin to feel good about God. And that perhaps is part of it. But it says here that we need to do things that you did at first. In other words, go back to the Word of God. Go back to the truth. Go back to our obedience to Him and His ways and not fall away from that anymore. And so he says that we need to repent and turn around and go God's way. And if we repent, then we'll be saved. But it tells us if we do not repent, in verse 5, what will happen? If we do not repent, we will lose our lampstand. In other words, our right to be a church. That's a fearful place. That happened in the Old Testament where, where the name Ichabod was giving, given to someone because the glory of God had departed in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The glory of God had departed from Israel. And this is what happens when the church fails to understand and fails to follow the truth of the Word of God. That we can write Ichabod over the church. We can write this church no longer is a church. It's become perhaps a social club or just a meeting place. And so when we hear these words, we need to take stock in ourselves and to obey the Word of God and to respond to it. Now, I'm no, in no way saying that St. Peter's is like Ichabod. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is there is a danger if we lose uh, where we're going. And so we need to repent and turn away uh, so that Jesus will not withdraw our right to be a church from us. You know, if you were McDonald's, if you had a McDonald's franchise and you started to sell some other foodstuff from the counter, uh, which was inferior, um, then McDonald's would come along and say, you can no longer be a McDonald's. They would remove your franchise. And in the same way Jesus is saying, if we as a church refuse to obey his word and to preach his word faithfully, the truth of it, then our franchise, our right to be a church, our lampstand will be removed from us, which is a fearful place for any church to get to. So, the Apostle John brings this letter to his people, to the people of God, and uh, it says, if you do not repent, I will remove your lampstand from its place. And this church is being challenged with regard to their um, heart, their love towards Jesus. Verse 6, and we're coming near to the end now, it says, but you have this in your favor. You hate, and that word hate has, has a, some passion attached to it. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, the question is, who are the Nicolaitans? And, and uh, they were a, a, a people um, who kind of dominated 
those who, who, who um, joined them, and they were compared to the, the teachings of Balaam uh, in, the Old, uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, Balaam was, was um, drawing people, uh, seducing people away from God's Word, uh, away from the Lord Himself, and worshipping the Lord to idols. And one of the commentators uh, puts it like this, the, the exact origin of the Nicolaitans is unclear. Some Bible commentators believe that they were a heretical sect who followed the teachings of Nicholas, whose name means victory people, or one who conquers the people, and uh, who was possibly one of the deacons of the early church mentioned in Acts 6. Uh, and uh, so, there, there is a connection to the New Testament here uh, as uh, this church is being uh, challenged about uh, the, the, the Nicolaitans sect. It is possible that Nicholas became an apostate, uh, denying the truth of the faith and becoming part of a group holding the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Israel to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Clement of Alexandria says uh, the Nicolaitans, uh, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. Their teaching perverted grace and replaced liberty with license, something that we need to be very careful of in our current generation. And so, Jesus is uh, identifying uh, this is a favorable mark upon the church uh, that they uh, would have nothing to do with the Nicolaitans because he also hates them. And this, here's the one who is the lover of men's souls and yet saying that these, this sect has so brutal and so much taking people away from him that he also hates them. Then in verse 7, the final verse of this chapter, it says, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit of God is speaking to His people. He's walking amongst the lampstands. He's communicating with His people in His church. Then it goes on to say, To the one who is victorious, I will give him the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The victorious one, according to this particular section, is the one who repents and turns away from sin and remains faithful to Jesus. And so we need to repent and turn away and remain faithful to Him in that way, in our own lives and within our own churches. And so what is this uh, eating of the tree of life that is in the paradise of God? Well, the tree of life is mentioned in the book of Genesis and here in the book of Revelation. It's a life-giving tree. Um, it was created to, to enhance uh, and sustain physical life throughout uh, time uh, for, for humanity. All of us uh, would have been sustained by this tree had it not been for the fall uh, in the Garden of Eden. And after the fall, 
uh, for the eating of the tree of the knowledge of the good, good and evil, man was barred from the garden and not allowed to eat of the tree of life so that he would not live forever. But of course now, because of Christ, we can, through his salvation, live forever. And uh, now we can see uh, that that curse of Eden has been reversed and, and uh, through what Christ has done, the reversal of that curse comes to us and we can be set free from that curse and allowed to live in him eternally. And so we too can live in the paradise of God and the, um, the cross is a good example of that where Jesus speaks to one of those on his side at the cross and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so we need to understand that we in the church are different. We're different from this world. We're not to walk in the ways of this world. The Bible tells us that we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are God's people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a chosen generation. We are a peculiar people. All of these identify God's people. We're a different people. We, are a di we have a different birth. We have a different education. We have a different journey that we follow from this world. We have different resting places that we come to. We have a different deathbed because we die as those are not without hope. And we have a different home to which we finally will go. And so we thank God for the fact that He is with us, that He walks amongst the lampstands, that He is continually with us in His church, that we are not our own, that we have been bought with a price, which is the precious blood of Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We thank God for His love for us. And even though the world might reject Him, we have been called to receive Him. And if you're listening to this this evening and you don't know Jesus Christ, then I would recommend to you that you find out who He is and come to know Him who is life eternal. May God bless you. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that it brings to us. We pray that by your Spirit that you will lead your people into truth, into all truth, through your word. And we ask, Lord, that as we meditate upon it, that we might receive from you. In Jesus' name. Amen.